Chris. As you're being seated, at this time we'll dismiss the children that have pre-registered for Children's Church to make their way to where they'll be worshiping. You'll see Miss Amy and Pastor Nathan there at the door. So please make your way toward them. As they're uh, going to children's worship, just wanted to give you an update on my daughter Emma. She is continuing to do well. Uh, we are very thankful. Her cough is consistent, getting stronger where she can clear her lungs. And uh, we believe she's even a little bit more alert and responsive when we talk with her and ask her questions. Her yeses and noes are becoming a little bit more quick and more definite. So we are very thankful and excited about that. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. And this morning I'll be reading verses 16 through 21. Last week I began a sermon series entitled Navigating a Changing Culture. Now this is a little bit different than what I normally do. Starting last week and then going through February 14th, we're going to be looking at some issues that are in our culture that as Christians we face that can be a challenge to us sharing the gospel and quite frankly can sometimes cause us to even question what we believe. Now if you've attended Trinity before you know that typically I preach expository messages. What that means is I open a, a text, we read it together and then I work my way through that text. So I want to tell you these next few Sundays are going to be a little bit different. I won't be expositing a text. We may be looking at different passages. I may be bringing in different lines of evidence and reasoning. So please understand this is a little bit out of the norm and out of, in some ways, my comfort zone. In fact, uh, what I'm doing this morning and in the weeks ahead is really more what I would be doing in a classroom uh, when I used to teach. So uh, we'll just consider ourselves classes in session. And we will go, go from there. If you need to go to the restroom, you'll need to lift your hand and ask. No, just kidding. Uh, let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Follow with me as I read. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Would you bow with me and let's pray? Father, thank you for the great love you have lavished upon us. We know that your love for us isn't because we have earned it, nor because we deserve it. But your love for us is because you are gracious. And for that we thank you. We thank you that in your love for us you have revealed yourself. You make yourself known. You have done so ultimately in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. You have done so in your word. 
that reveals to us who you are, what you have done, and allows us to know Jesus. Now, Father, I pray your blessing upon us this morning. Help us to see your hand at work in, in, your, in the Scripture. And help us, Father, to be equipped so that we will be able to answer those who ask us to give a reason for our hope in your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want to ask you to consider with me just a few things about the Bible. It's no secret that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Sold more than 5 billion copies. Over 100 million copies of the Bible are made each year. And by the way, did you know that the Bible is also the most stolen book taken from hospitals and hotels all around the world? It's been translated into 532 languages. It's been partially translated into 2,883 languages. According to Amazon, it is the most highlighted book among Kindle readers. Ironically, the largest producer of Bibles in the world is China, producing 12 million copies that it exports around the world. The Bible has inspired more songs than any other book, and it is also the most questioned book of all time. When you make a statement about your faith and you back it up by saying, well, that's what the Bible says, the person to whom you're speaking may look at you and say, well, so what? I mean, after all, isn't the Bible just a, a human book? Yeah, it's inspired and it's beautiful like the work of Shakespeare or a symphony written by Beethoven. But isn't the ethic and the beauty of the Bible spoiled by its pre-scientific worldview? Or someone else may look at you and say, why do you even believe the Bible? After all, isn't it just full of myths and legends? Or they may be well versed in what's been happening culturally over the last 15 years and they may answer, well, why do you believe those books? What about the lost gospels like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Philip? After all, weren't the 27 books of the New Testament determined at the Council of Nicaea under the command of the Emperor Constantine in order that he might consolidate his political power? Now, if those questions were poised to you, how would you respond? You may just shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, it, I don't know about all that. It's just the Bible. I was taught the Bible by my mama. Her mama taught her the Bible. I just believe the Bible. Amen. Hallelujah. In other words, you would appeal to tradition. But isn't that what the followers of Islam might say? Wouldn't a, a reader of the Quran look at you and say, Well, I was taught the Quran by my father whose father taught him. You find yourself at an impasse. Or you may answer another way. You may say, well, you know what? The Bible changed my life. You would argue from experience. I read it and I encountered God and it transformed me. And if that's the response you would give, I would ask you to consider this. The story of a young man born in Nebraska. 
Before he was five years old, his family uprooted and moved to Milwaukee. And shortly after that move, his father was tragically killed in a streetcar accident. His mother couldn't cope with what had happened. She was committed to a state institution. This little boy and his siblings were then doled out among foster homes throughout the city of Milwaukee. The minute he turned 18, he left the foster home that was giving him care and he went to New York City where he became involved in crime. Theft, drugs, gambling, even working as a pimp. Before the age of 20, he was arrested and began serving an 8 to 10 year prison sentence. While he was in prison, he was introduced to the writings of Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the nation of Islam. Those writings changed his life. When Malcolm Little was paroled, he was a changed man. No more drinking. He became a strict vegetarian, no more stealing. He changed his name to Malcolm X. And his testimony was, the writings of Elijah Muhammad changed him. So you find yourself at another impasse. So what are we to do when we are asked why we believe the Bible? Now I phrase that statement in that way intentionally. I'm not up here to defend the Bible. I believe what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, said was very true. You don't defend the Bible any more than you defend a lion. You simply let the lion loose. But in the spirit of 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, where we are told to be able to give a reason for the hope we have, I hope today that we will be better equipped to explain why we choose to believe the Bible. And I want to start with the definition. This definition I'm about to share with you comes from Dr. Vody Balkum, pastor, author, teacher. Currently, he's the dean of the seminary at the African Christian University in Zimbabwe. He has written this definition, and it comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Dr. Balkum says, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses, during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, which, which report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies, claiming that they are words of divine origin rather than human in origin. Now his definition of the Bible comes from what we just read. I'll walk briefly through this. Notice he begins by saying the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Notice in verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, these weren't myths we were telling you. These are historic events. He goes on to say, we are telling you in at the end of verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice. Peter emphasizes the eyewitness nature of what he is testifying about. That's what Dr. Balkum expresses in his definition. These documents were written by whom? Eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 
Notice the definition says these report supernatural events. In verses 17 and 18, Peter describes what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the voice spoke out of the the glory of God stating, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And notice these supernatural events flow from prophecy. He says these events are in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Look down to verses verses 19 and 20. He says we have something more sure. More sure than what? More sure than experience. What can be more certain than experience? Notice the answer. The prophetic word. Prophecies. And notice he says these prophecies do not come from human ingenuity or intellect. Verses 20 and 21. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now some may answer, well, Dr. Herod, aren't you using circular reasoning? You're using the Bible to prove the Bible, and you just can't do that. That's like saying, well, why is that true? Well, it's true because I said so. Boom. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this. This definition is corroborated by other evidence. Let's begin with the very first part of it. The Bible is a collection of historical documents. Keep in mind that the Bible is not one book. It's 66 books, a collection of books. And these 66 books were written over three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Not only were they written in different places, they were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And these 66 books were written by 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. Now that in and of itself is amazing. Where you have 40 authors writing in different languages, in different times, in different places, yet there is a unified theme throughout all 66 books. And as they are writing in these places, I would remind you, these are real places verified by archaeologists. And they wrote of real people. I always find it interesting reading Romans 16. Because when you dive into that chapter, you you encounter all these names. Paul starts saying, tell Narcissus, hello. Tell, uh, Tell Phoebe, hello. Tell these different people, hello. And in my mind, I'm imagining what these people must have been like in their lives. They were real people with real struggles and people that sought to follow Christ. Paul even mentions in the book of 2 Timothy that Timothy should be aware of Alexander the coppersmith in Ephesus. Because Alexander did Paul much harm. Specific names. You see, the reason that's important is that these are people whom the original readers of these letters could have interviewed, could have spoken with. It's not by accident that at the end of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark writes that the cross was carried by Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why in the world would he tell us that Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus? Could it be that Alexander and Rufus were a part of that church? And Mark is saying, go ask them. Their daddy helped carry the cross of Jesus. 
interestingly enough, in that passage in Romans 16, Paul mentions a Rufus living at Rome. Now, is it the same person? I don't know. Could it be? Possibly. But the point is this. These are people that are living. Go ask them. Interview them. That's why we believe that, along with Dr. Balcom's definition, the Bible was a reliable source of documents, or reliable documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Now, think about it. In a court of law, we recognize that eyewitness testimony is a valuable tool in establishing what really happened. If you have an event, and you can supply, say, five eyewitnesses to that event, you have a pretty substantial case. Did you know that in the book of 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about experiencing the risen Jesus, he says, Jesus appeared to Paul, I'm sorry, to Peter, to John and James, and 500 others, many of whom are still living. You know what he's saying? If you doubt my word, there are, let's just say, 400 people still living that you can go and talk to and ask about this. They are alive. Verify this. We're not making this up. And there's a good chance that Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, did just that. Luke begins his gospel by saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, many people have started to write this down. He says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You know what Luke's saying? I investigated this. Luke took his, his doctrinal and medical skills and investigated what was being written about and what was being told. The emphasis is on eyewitness accounts. Now that's crucial when you get to the issue of what is considered canon. Now canon may not be a word you're familiar with. Canon refers to a standard, a rule of measure. You may read or hear people talk about the, the Old Testament canon or the New Testament canon. When used in regards to Scripture, it refers to these books that are closed. In other words, these are the standard. They're not going to change. That would be like saying, well, we've established that a foot is 12 inches, but now we've decided to change it to 13 inches. No, there is a canon established, a standard by which you can gauge truth. Take, for example, if you were to go and to purchase a two-liter bottle of Diet Coke. And as you're looking at the bottle, you start thinking, you know, I don't think that's two liters. And because you're like me and you're a little bit obsessive-compulsive, you decide that you're going to fly to France to visit St. Cloud, France, to go into the International, uh, International Institution of Measurements and Weights because there they have the standard of what a two-liter bottle is. So you can compare your bottle of Food City Diet Coke with the real thing. That's the idea of a cannon. So the scripture is a canon. It's established not to be added to or taken away from. So the question is, why these 66 books? Why did these become canon? Now, due to time constraints, I'm only going to focus on the New Testament. And I do that not only because of time issues, but it's, it's clear that by the time of Jesus, the 39 books of the Old Testament were already established. In the words of Jesus, and by the way, in other historical writings of that time, you'll see this. For example, in Luke 24, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with Cleophas. 
And he says, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That threefold division, the law of Moses, which is the Torah, the prophets, which in the Hebrew Bible encompasses the historical books, 1 Samuel all the way through Obadiah and Nahum and all the prophets, and the Psalms representing the wisdom literature encompasses all the Old Testament scripture. Jesus is saying, I am speaking to you what the Old Testament said about me. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. All Scripture there is the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't in existence when Paul wrote this. Paul was writing the New Testament. So he's saying the Old Testament's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction. Everything you need to know about a godly life you can find in the Old Testament. So how did the New Testament come about? How did it become accepted as the Word of God? Let's start with the theory that I mentioned a little bit earlier because it's the one that has been most popularized and is most recent. If you've read or seen The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, you have seen and heard this theory Made, made popular, popularized. It's the premise that the New Testament was canonized, made the standard at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. The Council of Nicaea took place in Nicaea, France. It was convened by, by Constantine. It brought all the leaders, all the bishops of the churches, the larger cities in the area together to decide on some theological issues. Now, this theory holds that at this council, two things took place. One, Jesus was made divine. In other words, it's thought by, taught by liberal scholars that up to this point, no one taught that Jesus was fully God and fully man. But at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, he was made divine. And then it's also theorized that at this council... The New Testament books were established by Constantine in order to ensconce his power. Now, if I could answer that by using the Hebrew word barak, barak, whole bunch of bull. First of all, the Council at Nicaea did not make Jesus divine. Writings were already in existence. The Gospels, where Jesus himself spoke that he was truly God in the flesh. Furthermore, the Council of Nicaea did not vote on any books. Nor did any of the other seven church councils. For over 400 years, between 325 and 787, there were seven church councils where the leaders of the churches met to discuss and determine theological issues. These councils dealt with the incarnation of Jesus, what it meant for him to be fully God and fully man. They dealt with the Holy Spirit, but never, and I emphasize, never did they discuss, debate, or vote on which books should be accepted as New Testament canon. They never did because they were already recognized. Bruce Metzger was recognized prior to his death in 2007 as the leader, world-leading expert on biblical manuscripts. Even skeptics would agree that Dr. Metzger knew his stuff. 
he taught at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary and he wrote this, neither individuals nor councils created the canon. Instead, they, these councils, came to recognize and acknowledge. Now those words are crucial. They did not vote on, they did not deem. They recognized and acknowledged the self-authenticating quality of these writings which imposed themselves as canonical upon the church. There was no vote, no discussion. The Bible is not man-made. It's revealed by God and acknowledged by humanity to be divine in its inspiration. And what Dr. Metzger is writing here simply echoes the writings of the early church fathers. Those who came along after the apostles, men like Papias, in A.D. 120 says he knew of four gospels. It's A.D. 120, well before 325. Also, you have the witness of Irenaeus of Leon and Clement of Alexandria. In A.D. 180, they both wrote that four gospels are accepted by all. Once again, in Origen, in A.D. 240, he mentions 23 of the 27 New Testament books. And Athanasius, in 327, wrote a letter celebrating Easter, and in that letter he listed all 27 New Testament books that were accepted and recognized as authoritative. The early church father used terms like receive, recognize, confess these books, acknowledge, when referring to the books of the New Testament. The Bible is not man-made. It is recognized as divinely authoritative and given by God. Now, looking back, we can see some commonalities among these writings. For example, I'm going to give you four of them. Some common traits in the New Testament books. They were written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. Let me explain what I mean. Remember, we talked about eyewitness accounts. An apostle is not someone who just says, Hey, I think I want to be an apostle. Start calling me Apostle Mark. Well, that's not the way it worked. Now, on one sense, I recognize that because the word apostle literally means sent with a message, we're all apostles in that sense. But we do not carry the authority that the twelve apostles and Paul carried. That's because to be considered an apostle, there were three pieces of criteria. One, you had to actually have seen Jesus physically. Paul did on the road to Damascus. The apostles walked with Jesus, talked with him, even felt the wounds in his hands. Furthermore, an apostle was directly commissioned by Jesus. Not everyone who saw Jesus in the crowds was commissioned to be an apostle. There were 12 that were called. So you had to be directly commissioned by Jesus. And by the way, Paul was on the road to Damascus. And finally, an apostle had to work miracles to validate that calling. You find this throughout the scripture. So we see that these apostles wrote as eyewitnesses. Now, notice and remember earlier I said someone closely associated with an apostle. Luke was not an apostle. But he was closely associated with Paul. And Luke said, I investigated this. Take Mark, for example, the Gospel of Mark. There's some evidence, and, and I tend to lean this way myself, that Mark actually wrote Peter's Gospel. Because at the end of 1 Peter, Peter says, mentions Mark, his son in the faith. So there was an apparently a very close, a mentoring relationship between the apostle Peter 
and Mark. So I think it's very plausible that Mark simply wrote down the gospel as Peter told him. So we see that the, the books of the New Testament were written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. And there's also an incredible doctrinal consistency among these books. For example, one, monotheism. If these books had wanted to read, gain a wide reading, there would have been no problem becoming polytheistic. Just say, Jesus is another God. But they didn't. They held to strict monotheism. There was one God. That's in continuity with the Old Testament. By the way, they were in agreement with the person of Jesus, that he was fully God and fully man. If you read the lost Gospels, like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Philip, the Gnostic Gospels, first of all, keep in mind that they were written in the 200s. Going back earlier, remember, by 120 A.D., Papias said he knew of four Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels came along at the minimum of 80 years after Papias said that. Furthermore, when you read those Gnostic Gospels, Philip and Thomas, you'll find they deny the humanity of Jesus. Many of them present Jesus actually as a, a ghost-like figure who when he walked upon the beach didn't leave footprints. So these books compromised the truth about who Jesus is. But what you see in the New Testament is the truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man. There's also continuity with Israel. You see this continuity between the Testaments as the New Testament is written and as the church grows. Furthermore, they are consistent in the truth that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. The Gnostic Gospels will emphasize works and secret knowledge. But not so with the New Testament. It is consistent in its message. Two other things I'll mention briefly. Common traits of the New Testament books, they were universally accepted. Yeah, some areas of the Roman Empire struggled with accepting Revelation, for example. And I think we can see why, because it's hard to understand. But 27 books came about in agreement among the church all across the Roman Empire, stretching from India all the way into England. Now think about how hard it is to get one church body to agree on one thing. And now you have empire-wide agreeance upon 27 books. Furthermore, and this fourth one is a little bit more subjective, these books were self-authenticating. When you read them, there was something in your heart, in your spirit, that was moved. That pointed to that these are the Word of God. And we acknowledge them. We receive them. But no vote upon them. Now, at this point, if I were teaching in a classroom, I would say, okay, Let's take a deep breath, stand and stretch so we don't blow our cerebral cortex. I want to move on, but do so a little bit uh, quickly because as I said, time is moving on. I want us to take a closer look at the Gospels. Because the Gospels have come under attack. Because if you undermine the Gospels, what good's the other books of the New Testament? Now, the attack on the Gospels comes about by saying, well, the Gospels are just myths. The miraculous things were added later. They're just legends. And what I want us to see is that there are four answers to give when the accusation is made that the Gospels are just legend. First is this, the level of detail is amazing. Especially if you're thinking these are just made up legends. Think about how most myths or legends begin. 
Once upon a time, in a land far away, a great adventure took place. Okay. It's very general. But what do you see in the Gospels? When Quirinius was the governor of Syria, a census went out throughout the whole Roman Empire that everyone should be taxed. That's pretty clear historical specificity. And this taxing took place while Joseph was engaged to, to marry his wife and she was pregnant. And so they got up and they went to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. There is great detail in the Gospels. Even in the Gospel of John when they record that Peter is standing next to a charcoal fire when he denies Jesus. And when Jesus appears to him on the sand and the beach at Galilee, once again there's a charcoal fire. Now understand that when you want to propagate a lie, you want to be very general. Because the more detail you give, the easier it will be to shoot holes in the lie. The Gospels are full of detail. There's another thing, the role of women. At the time the Gospels were written, women were not considered valid uh, eyewitnesses. The testimony of a woman would be ruled out in court. Women, in fact, could not testify in court. So consider something. Who were the first witnesses of the empty tomb? Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Salome. If you're wanting to create a myth, a story, to be believed, why would you have your first eyewitnesses be a group that would be written off from the beginning? That would be nonsensical. Furthermore, when you read through the Gospels, and in fact the remainder of the, the New Testament, you'll see a prominent role that women had in the growth of the church. For example, many don't realize, but in the Gospel of Luke, it makes mention of a group of women that traveled with Jesus and the apostles, supporting, underwriting the ministry of Jesus financially. That's amazing. Jesus could make coins appear in fish's mouth, but how did he choose to work? Through a group of women who were of means so that they could actually pay for things the disciples and Jesus would need. Consider also the portrayal of the disciples. They're not exactly role models in courage. They had failings. They fell out with one another at times. They scattered at the crucifixion. Even Paul recognizes that he had to confront Peter because Peter was wrong on something. And then Paul himself later on recognizes that he mistreated John Mark. You see, these were men that were not painted as these invincible heroes of the faith. They stumbled. They're portrayed as real people. Once again, that's not something you would want to do if you were saying these are the men that were given the ministry of carrying on the gospel. And then we come back to the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, next week, we're going to talk about Christianity and science. But if I could just whet your appetite a little bit, this role of eyewitnesses is crucial in answering the scientific question. Because some people say, well, science has disproven the New Testament. Science can't do that. The scientific method is to look at what is measurable, observable, and repeatable. You can't do that with history. You can't observe history. It's already happened. It's not repeatable. So you can't do that. So what do you do? Historical methodology relies on eyewitness accounts to establish the veracity of what did or did not happen. That's why eyewitness testimony is so crucial. 
Now, many at this point will say, well, we, we buy that Pastor Herod, but after all, the testimony of the eyewitnesses has been corrupted. What you have, you can't trust. It may have started out true, but over time it has been changed. And they often use the analogy of a game that used to be played called telephone. You would get a, a group of people in a room, and they would sit in a circle, and I may lean over to my friend Gabriel here, and I may whisper a story to him. And then Gabriel would tell it to, to Bonnie, Bonnie would tell it to Kyle, Kyle would tell it to Candace, Candace then to Lisa, Lisa then uh, to, to Laura, Laura to Nathan, to Julie, and then back to me. And guess what would happen to the story by the time that it went all the way through that? It would have changed. And they say that's exactly what happened to the New Testament. Because all we have are translations of translations. That's not accurate. I preach from the English Standard Version of the Bible. I think it's a very readable and accurate translation. But this translation was not made from the King James Bible. This translation was made from the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic documents. As was the NIV. The King James Version was translated from the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic documents. The New Living Translation was translated from those documents. Now, once again, a person may say, well, Pastor, we don't have the original documents. And I would say, that's absolutely correct. So the issue then is, can the manuscripts be trusted? And I want to move through this quickly. And by the way, Chris is going to work with me to get this PowerPoint online so you can access it and look into it a little bit more. So can the manuscripts be trusted? First, consider this. There are over 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. That's the New Testament alone. If you add in the Old Testament, you have over 20,000 biblical manuscripts. Now let's do a little bit of comparison. When it comes to Caesar's Gaelic Wars, Caesar, Julius Caesar's account of the wars in France, there are 10 copies in existence. 10. When you take a look at Aristotle's poetics, there are less than 10 copies. There are fragments that are pieced together. The works of Socrates, no copies. The only thing we know about Socrates is what we know through Plato or Aristotle. That's it. Now the reason that's important is this. How do you determine if a manuscript is accurate? You compare it with different manuscripts. So when you have 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, those manuscripts have been found all the way from, from England down into Sinai and even over into Asia. And when those 6,000 manuscripts are compared, they do not contradict one another. Now yes, there are differences in, in grammar sometimes. Words are misspelled. Sometimes homonyms are inserted. Like bear, B-A-R-E for B-E-A-R. Because they are listening as the monks were copying. But there is no difference in doctrine or the content of what is recorded. That in and of itself is amazing. Now, I've got one more thing I wanted to present to you to consider. It's an accepted premise that a, an account that is written closer to the actual event is more than likely to be accurate, more accurate than one written later. You understand? So if I, if I see something and I write it down an hour later, I'm going to remember it better then than I will, say, six months from now. So let's keep that in mind. Consider this. The Gallic Wars that we mentioned just a moment ago, written by Julius Caesar, 
There are 10 copies of it. The oldest copy we have in existence was written 900 years after Caesar invaded Gaul. 900 years. Poetics by Aristotle. The oldest manuscript we have of the poetics was written 1,400 years after Aristotle's death. Works of Homer, the oldest manuscript, 2,100 years after his death. When it comes to the New Testament, the oldest manuscript we have was written 25 years after his death, resurrection, and ascension. 25 years. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John. And what that tells us is that within 25 years of Jesus' ascension, the Gospels were being written. That's incredible. From historical methodology, that's amazing compared to the evidence we have for the Gaelic Wars, poetics, or the works of Homer. Now, I've given you a lot of information this morning. And I want to conclude with this. All this is good and it's important. And we should equip ourselves to be able to give an answer as to why we believe. But all of this will become moot if we do not show that we value the Word of God by reading it and seeking to obey it. If we can give all these lines of arguing, arguments, but we don't seek to love our neighbor and to obey Christ, we are simply clanging symbols that accomplish nothing. So I ask you this morning to let this message renew a passion within you to dive into God's Word to live it. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for loving us enough to give us your word. And I thank you that we can have confidence in your word. That you worked supernaturally through over thousands of years so that what we need would be recorded so that we might read it and Father, be transformed by it. Father, thank you for loving us. And Lord, I pray that Jesus will be glorified and honored in all things.